Welcome to Runnymede Radio. This is Joanna Barron. We've had a bit of a summer hiatus, but we're back and have some outstanding guests lined up for this fall, um, as well as campus events. So please check out the news section at runnymedesociety.ca for information on those. It would be great to see you there. My guest today is one of the most articulate and originally thinking free speech champions I've ever met, and I've met many. Steve Simpson is Director of Legal Studies at the Ayn Rand Institute in Irvine, California. We talk a little bit about the Ayn Rand and objectivist piece of his life and career before shifting to a substantive discussion about the particular importance of the college campus as a petri dish for how we think about intellectual freedom, as well as a preview of how our society is being shaped. We talk about the antipodes of physical violence versus speech before turning to a discussion of how intolerance plays out on the world stage with religious intolerance, particularly in the cases of the violent backlash against Salman Rushdie, the Mohammed cartoons, and Charlie Hebdo. Thanks and enjoy. Thank you so much for coming on Running Mead Radio, Steve Simpson. Um, could you tell um, our listeners a little bit about who you are, what you do, and how you got to where you are? Sure. I'm the director of legal studies at the Ayn Rand Institute. Uh, we're basically a think tank uh, in Irvine, California, that promotes Ayn Rand's ideas, the novelist and philosopher. Uh, my background, really quickly, is I went to law school in the early 90s, Um, Worked for a law firm for a little while and a a federal judge here in the States. And then I moved to an organization called the Institute for Justice, which is uh, basically a libertarian public interest law firm. So we sued the government on behalf of individuals asserting uh, the kinds of rights that public interest interest law firms don't typically vindicate, like property rights, economic liberty, uh, but also freedom of speech. Um, So I did that for 13 years. I I focused primarily on uh, free speech issues. Uh, I handled a number of high profile campaign finance cases. Um, And then from there, I I decided that uh, I was getting a little bit worn out with the law. Litigating can get uh, grueling and it's actually kind of thankless at times uh, because you write brilliant briefs, or at least what you think are brilliant briefs and judges don't pay as much attention. So I actually wanted to write a bit more to an audience who, uh, you know, I could I could reach. So I decided to come to ARI and do essentially policy work. And so now what I do is I write on uh, legal issues from an objectivist perspective and with a real serious concentration these days on free speech, um, which I think we'll be talking a lot about uh, because it's such an important issue. Yes, yeah, so we'll touch on that in a moment, but just curious, uh, first of all, because it's it's sort of unusual and sometimes somewhat exotic that you um, that you write about legal issues from an objectivist perspective. So I'm just curious, um, have you been sort of influenced by Ayn Rand's writing and thought for your whole life, or did you come to it later? Uh, I'm just curious about that. Um, I discovered Ayn Rand after college. So basically, I graduated from college and I really didn't think I had educated, gotten very good education mm-hmm. through no fault through no fault of the school I went to. So I was I got out and I really decided I needed to educate myself more. And one of the things that I was looking into is just kind of what do I believe? And uh, and I was reading a lot of philosophy, a lot of economics, that kind of thing. And I came across Ayn Rand. At some point, um, I read one of her nonfiction books called The Virtue of Selfishness first. I thought it was fascinating, but there was a lot about it I didn't understand. So I went back and I read The Fountainhead and, and then Atlas Shrugged and, and her novels. And I 
Um, I found that I agreed with it. I studied it fairly in-depthly for a number of years, but I wasn't really part of the, there's a sort of objectivist movement throughout the world these days. I, I was less part of the movement and more just studying it myself. I, I had a career to focus on. So I was very interested in the philosophy, but um, also, uh, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to launch a career. I wanted to do other things and I was hugely busy with um, my legal career. So while I kept studying the, the philosophy and integrating it into my life, I, uh, I was mainly focused on, you know, career things and that kind of thing. Well, it's interesting how the two things have dovetailed in your career and in your life. It's sort of, oh yeah, it's interesting how these things all seem to come together in the end. Yeah, that's true. Um, so let's, uh, without further preamble, let's get into the topic of free speech. So your Twitter handle, I noticed, is SS Free Speech. So clearly this is a sort of <laughs> signature issue for you. And I just really, um, I'd like to hear you articulate why you think free speech is sort of the definitive issue of our time. I, I believe I've heard you say that in a yep. few contexts. Yeah, I think it is because, I mean, there are two ways to think about it. One, it's definitely under attack in my view. And I think this is worldwide, uh, but let's focus, you know, we could focus sort of on the Western world, so to speak, which is, you know, obviously Europe, UK, Canada, US, you know, a few other countries. Um, I really think that free speech is under attack uh, and it's fundamental to a free and civilized society. Um, there's a good English author by the name of Mick Hume, who wrote a book called Trigger Warnings. And I think he stated the point as succinctly and, and well for our time as possible. He calls free speech the killer app of civilization, as in, you know, an app for your iPhone. And I think it's a great way of thinking about it because we, we take free speech, those of us who live in essentially free countries who have free speech, we take it for granted because it's just part of our lives. It's like it's like the air that we breathe and breathe in a sense. But if you think about how important it is not just to having a free society having a technologically advanced society um but also to living a good life it's profoundly important it's absolutely it's a cornerstone i mean you cannot have a free society such as we have without freedom of speech when you think about what society is it's essentially or, or what are the attributes what are the, what are the values of living in society and the two, if you really boil them down to their essence that I see is one trading with other people and just interacting with them and obviously uh, gaining and storing knowledge. And you can't have either of those things without free speech. So it's so important. People take it such for uh, so much for granted. And yet over the last several decades, at least um, in my legal practice and now in what I do today, I've seen for a number of years that it's really under attack and, and it's uh, it's quite frightening. Um, so I, I just think that this is something that we really need to defend if we want to continue to have a free society. Okay, so to, then the second part of that question, which you already touched on, is we've talked about why free speech is so central and important and why it's the sort of value above all other values, because it's actually the value by which we can determine our other values in the marketplace right. of ideas. So the under attack part. Um, I know because you and I were on a panel together in Vancouver that both of us agree that the primary threat or the most disconcerting threat to free speech is not at the legal level, particularly in the United States, where um, there's been a legal victory, which perhaps we'll get to um, later in our conversation for free speech. Um, and the First Amendment is extremely strong, um, but it's on a cultural level um, and yeah. it's, it's, it derives from self-censorship. Um, so can you talk about that? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the 
And I agree with you wholeheartedly uh, that it, it this comes from culture. You could think about it as from the realm of ideas and, and how people view free speech. Um, I think for a number of years, decades now, people have been slowly but surely either undermining it or just giving up on it as a, as a value and as a principle that is a bedrock principle in society. Um, in the U.S., if you, as you noted, we have, I mean, there's this weird paradox in that we have great protections from a legal standpoint. I mean, as you noted, the Mattel case uh, just came down in the U.S. and it's it's ma- pretty much makes clear that hate speech laws are not going to survive in the U.S. for the time being. But at, at the same time, we have this really strange phenomenon, uh, which you can see on college campuses, I think, easiest when you look at a lot of the controversies that have happened on college campuses, a lot of the uh, the not just um, the protests of what people are saying, you know, even when they're saying entirely reasonable things, the sort of intimidation tactics that people use against students very often and professors in the classroom. But in recent months, this year especially, actual outright attacks on campus of people who are speaking. So you have the riots at Berkeley, which I don't think surprised a lot of people because it's Berkeley and it was Milo Yiannopoulos. But then you have the Middlebury attacks on Charles Murray. Then you have the Claremont McKenna uh, kind of protests and threats against uh, Heather McDonald. Uh, then you have what happened at Evergreen State College in Oregon, which is one of the most surreal and, and just bizarrest things I've seen. Uh, and then a number of other things that are very related to that. And and it becomes clear that something is happening on the universities. I think it's it's fundamentally that students are being taught ideas that lead them to abandon free speech. Um, we could sum it up as uh, identity politics or multiculturalism, those kinds of ideas, and maybe we can talk more about them. But the way I look at it often, and I tell this to audiences, is you know we've heard the cliche before that children are our future, but it's a cliche for a reason because it's true in large in large part, right? So if you think of the college kids of today and uh, and what they understand about free speech, the extent to which they actually support it. I mean, I still think the the crazy people on campus, the worst people on campus are a vocal minority, but the majority of, of students on campus, campus aren't really pushing back against this. And if you think 10, 20 years out into the future, these people become the legislators, they become the judges who are, you know, uh, interpreting the First Amendment, you could really see a turn against free speech. And I think that what I often tell Americans is if you want to see what that looks like, look to other countries. Canada, not least among them, where we have hate, where you guys have hate, hate speech laws and, and, you know, in Europe, these, these laws are growing. So I see a really bad trend and I think it's ultimately coming from people's misunderstanding of what free speech is and why it's important. Yeah, well, I guess the, the particularly disconcerting aspect of, of what's going on on the college campuses, there's at least two ways to look at it. The first is, as you brought up, that the today's students or in 20 years will be, you know, in, in government or in policy positions. But the other one, it seems to me, is that universities where presumably I you can just freely explore ideas without consequences. Of course, you won't feel as free to dissent against the sort of party line of your employer, um, to use an unfortunate Soviet term. But it really, if, if we can't get it right in universities, there's so little hope for the real world, right? Yeah, I absolutely think that's true. And um, another way to think about it, I mean, I definitely agree with you, but the 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 universities are where ideas are formulated and kind of passed down and filtered out throughout society. It, it's like ideas basically start as intellectual trends start 
among intellectuals and academics or among the foremost intellectuals out there. And then all the opinion leaders kind of look to them to set the standards. And actually, if you trace back, if you just trace back identity politics or the idea of intersectionality and multiculturalism, you can find roots um, uh, in the universities and among philosophers and thinkers, even as early as the 1980s um, with the, the critical legal studies and just critical studies movement and a lot of the other ideas that are now manifesting themselves in attacks on free speech. The universities, I think, are the battlegrounds in a sense that if 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 they go um, and nothing else changes, it's a matter of time before their ideas and their approaches really filter out into society. Okay, so what so what are the right ideas that should that ought to be taught and taken up? Yeah, that's a that's a good way to start. You know, most people start with the bad ideas, but I actually think it's better to start with the good ideas. So uh, bravo. Um, yeah. So the right ideas. Uh, so free speech. The way I think about it is that um, free speech is a kind of corollary to freedom of thought. And we and I think that people need to think about it that way. It's the, the two are interrelated because ultimately what you're speaking is, you know, you hear the expression speak your mind. And it's a it's literally true. You're speaking what you think. Um, and in order so the, the, the way I would put it is we can't live free, productive, good lives if we're we can't think for ourselves and if we can't communicate for ourselves. So so freedom of speech and freedom of thought are bedrock principles, not only for a free society, but for living a human, normal, good you know, human life and pursuing your own values, as you put it before, just formulating and communicating values requires thought and speech. So we have to think about what ideas we think are true. We've got to chart our own course in life. I mean, you can see this basic idea embedded in the Declaration of Independence, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life is about doing something other than just existing. It's about pursuing goals and pursuing happiness. And you've got to be able to chart your own course. You've got to be able to think for yourself. And you have to be able to communicate with others. So the principle of free speech comes in at the level of essentially you have the right, the government should uh, recognize and protect your right to say whatever you want so long as you don't right, violate the rights of others. And typically with free speech, it's hard to do that. Now there are ways, incitement, fraud, things like that, that people can actually violate the rights of others using speech. And so we need legal protections for uh, people and we need to, a rule of law society. But people have to recognize something that is absolutely fundamental to this, which they don't recognize today. We really see a mixing of, uh, of ideas here, which is that there's a distinct and fundamental difference between speaking and trading in ideas and using force against and violence against other people. Those two things are, are antipodes. They're absolute opposites. Um, and really, you can think about the way if you look through the long course of human uh, civilization, the two ways that people interact is either persuasion or they interact with force. And you have societies that are based on force and they're horrible and societies that are based on persuasion and they're good. I mean, that's an oversimplification, but but that's the that's really the gist of it. And 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 interestingly, one of the things that is is fascinating in a horrifying way, but still fascinating is when you see on campus students equating speech with violence, which we've been seeing now for a number of years, they say things like, when you speak out, you're doing violence against me, you're threatening me, you're threatening my safety. And the fascinating thing is those students who actually believe that speech is violence will necessarily and are, we're actually seeing them, resort to violence uh, in, the, in the face of speech. And it's entirely logical. If you actually think 
that someone's speech is a real threat to you, you're going to defend yourself and you're going to use violence against them. And that's actually what we're seeing. So we really need to see free speech as the opposite of force or violence and an absolutely essential part of what it means to live a good life. Yeah, we either have guns or conversation as human beings to work things out between us. It's really, it yep. really is that simple. Um, yeah. But, but to to come back to the point of the silent majority, or your earlier point that the students who are resorting to violence are probably a small but vocal and certainly um, consequential minority. Um, and this, I think, is a sort of challenge for educators and for intellectuals such as yourself. It occurs to me that free speech and liberty more broadly is in some sense runs against the grain of human nature. Um, in, others, in other words, it is our natural tendency to sort of hew to the group. Um, and it's very difficult to persuade college students to speak out when, you know, a bulk of the of the student majority tends to go along with the politics of intersectionality and go along with allegations that Charles Murray, for example, is a bigot. So how, how do we get over that threshold. Um, it, it's, it's difficult where there are social and sort of tribal human group consequences. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, that uh, That's a really challenging issue to push back against. But I think ultimately we have, so we can't look at free speech in a vacuum and think that it's separate from other types of intellectual, philosophical, you know, trends. Um, we have to understand that that so I, I said earlier that free speech and free thought go hand in hand, but both are attributes of individuals. So we have so individualism is a real uh, important component of the mix of what it takes to defend not only free speech, but a free society in general. People have to recognize that the put it sort of formally the the fundamental unit of society is the individual and not the group. And then individuals can choose to join groups if they want. But they're not, you know, society, it should, we shouldn't look at society as made up of warring factions or tribes. And a lot of the ideas that are undermining free speech really hold that. I mean, that's what, as at the root of multiculturalism and identity politics, it's that you're defined by your, quote, identity, but your identity is a non-essential factor. It's things like sex, like race, like ethnicity, and a whole list of other crazy things when you when you get into intersectionality. But they define themselves not by, uh, I mean, I often echo or, or quote Martin Luther King, we should define ourselves uh, or judge each other by the content of our character, not the color of our skin. That's about as good a statement of the essential principle here as anything I can think of. So in fighting back against the attacks on free speech, we've got to, we've got to embolden people and give them the moral confidence to stand up for themselves as individuals um, and stand up for their own ideas and their own thought processes. So we've got to teach people that you, you know, it's not a quote sin to be wrong and to make mistakes. It's part of the learning process. Um, there aren't orthodox ideas that are unchallengeable. All ideas are questionable and we ought to question them and think them through. That's the only way you can learn. That doesn't mean that no truths are ever settled. But it does mean that the only way that any individual is going to come to understanding the truth is if he thinks for himself. Group, you know, groupism or group identity or group thought is the absolute opposite of free speech. Now, so you've also hit on something that I think is a huge challenge. So why is it that human beings feel more comfortable? You know, if you look historically, this is definitely true. Feel more comfortably identifying in groups and tribes. I think there's a lot to this. This is that is difficult to unpack, but. 
part of uh, what I would focus on, and this is something that Ayn Rand focused on, is the dominant morality today is a kind of collectivist ethic. It's It holds that our fundamental, you know, uh, role or goal in life should be to sacrifice our own interests to groups or to, to join with the collective and, and sacrifice to the state or the community or the family. And that's something that we really have to push back against. And, and at the very least, what I try to get people to understand is you have to understand that you're an individual and you have to think for yourself and you've got to figure out how to chart your own course. And the only way you're going to do that is by standing up for your own individuality and your own right to think. So one of the things we really need to defend is people's moral right to think for themselves. So that's, I think, a huge part of this. Yeah, I agree. I mean, your your vision is highly idealistic, but I think if we if we aren't idealistic, then we're appeasing. And so to turn to that yeah. point and, and a re- related problem, um, at I saw you speak at a panel at Pittsburgh with your colleague Fleming Rose, who is the newspaper editor who made the decision at the G-Lens Post in to publish the Muhammad cartoons. And you made a comment that there is a direct line to be drawn from Salman Rushdie um, and the fallout from the publication of the Satanic Verses, the Muhammad cartoons to Charlie Hebdo um, and the attacks in Paris. Um, and so I just wondered if you could I- expand on that. Are you referring primarily there to Western intellectual appeasement? Uh, yes, but I think there's way more than that. But but if you just focus on the free speech attacks, the attacks by Islamic uh, totalitarians is what I try to re- typically refer to them as. Um, yeah, uh, I think that those attacks definitely start with the Salman Rushdie affair. I mean, you had... You know the the Islamic Revolution um, in uh, Iran, uh, Iran, and the ascendancy of the Ayatollah, and then and we did nothing about that. And then you have uh, essentially a, a hostile foreign power, and I would say hostile to all Western countries, but certainly to the countries that he he threatened, or the the, the countries whose citizens he threatened. So the UK and the US, I don't know about, I think Canada too, actually. Wasn't there a bookstore that, that um, yes, maybe I'm was. wrong? Yeah, yeah. right. Um, and so it was in effect uh, a threat to the Western world that if you offend us um, or if your citizens offend us, we're going to go out and and our sort of soldiers, so to speak, are going to are gonna murder them. That's a direct attack on, on the very foundations of a free society. And we let it go. We did almost nothing about it. It was total capitulation. I mean, other than some some sort of weasel words from Bush uh, from Bush one in America, and I think uh, most of the other heads of state, they really did nothing about it at all. Um, and 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 I think even almost worse than taking no kind of action at the state level was this intellectual appeasement. I mean, there was if you look at it, at the the Salman Rushdie affair, there was way more opposition to what happened among intellectuals. So the the writers group Penn was outraged by that. But if you fast forward then to the early 2000s, the post 9-11 period, the the Danish cartoons, or actually really an early uh, incident was the murder of Theo van Gogh for making a film with Ion Hirsi Ali that was critical of Muslims. Um, in the Netherlands. And this guy was, I mean, he was gunned down and then stabbed in broad daylight and a note pinned to his chest that said, Ion Hirsi Ali is next. Again, nothing happens. And at this point, you start having Western intellectuals 
wondering and kind of hand-wringing, maybe we should apologize to the people who are attacking us for our free speech. And then you fast forward to a number of other incidents, I think the big one being um, the uh, the cartoon crisis. And if you read Fleming book, Fleming Rose's book, The Tyranny of Silence, it's chilling. I hadn't realized just how bad the appeasement was among intellectuals in Europe. Uh, Fleming Rose was criticized for, uh, you know, effectively inciting violence, which is crazy and wrong from a legal and just any logical sense. He didn't incite violence. Yeah, he pissed people off, but that's not the same thing as incitement. Um, they blamed him for this. Um, he blamed him for, for independent, you know, the independent decisions of what I would call just to be, I don't know, somewhat crude about it, crazy people engaging in violence. And then you had the same thing in America um, uh, after or a worldwide basis after the Charlie Hebdo attacks. There are many others we could talk about um, here in America and abroad. And Fleming goes through them in his book. But that's a steady course and, and a kind of growing um, trend toward blaming the victims of this, blaming Western uh, kind of hubris, so to speak, and blaming free speech ultimately for violence of what amount to criminals. Um, if you do that, people are going to continue to both you're going to get continued attacks. You're just going to embolden the enemies. And at the same time, you're going to uh, destroy the moral confidence of those who should be speaking out. Um, so, I mean, it's a really horrible thing, but I think you can see a direct trend from the Rushdie affair all the way up to the recent attacks, um, you know, certainly on free speech, but probably even the other terror attacks that we've seen worldwide. But is the solution then just to sort of restore moral faith in Western classical liberal principles? Um, and how do you approach sort of engaging with radical Islamists, radical jihadi Islamists, when they've made it absolutely clear that they are not open to to dialogue or conversation? Yeah. Uh, I, I, mean, I realize that's a, that's a big, you know, a big question yeah. to ask. I mean, I, I guess I would boil it down, and this is a vast over, oversimplification, so I don't want to suggest that you know, just a little bit I'm saying here is all that we have to do. There's way more complicated things to deal with. But I think there have to be two, maybe maybe I would divide it into three components. One is um, Western governments have got to take some sort of action again, and I would say military action. Now, this is wrapped up. There's a broader phenomenon here, which is generally speaking, what do you do about Islamic fundamentalism and militant, uh, the militant elements of it and jihadism? I mean, ultimately, I think you have to go after the states that sponsor it, but that's beyond the scope of our discussion. So I won't try to go into that. But I do think governments have to do something. But I also think there's a there's an element that is both governmental and, and intellectual, which is we have to be willing people who believe in classical liberal ideas or enlightenment ideas in Western civilization. And by Western civilization, I don't mean literally the West geographically. I mean, the ideas that go to make up um, uh, Western classical liberalism. People have to be willing to defend them as good and criticize those ideas that attack them. So just as I think people can get that the socialism that has taken root in Venezuela and is destroying Venezuela is there. There, It's not just bad guys who are destroying Venezuela. They're motivated by a horrible, evil ideology, the, the, the consequences of which we saw throughout the 20th century. Or if you want to take Nazism, that's one that's much easier for people to see. That's an evil ideology. 
it's not just a bunch of bad people took over Germany. It was they were they took over in the name of an evil ideology, and people weren't afraid to call it an evil ideology. We've got to do the same with, <clears throat> excuse me, Islamic totalitarianism. We have to be willing to criticize bad ideas. Now, there's broader, I would say, we have to be willing to do things like criticize other people's philosophies, other people's cultures, other people's religions. Um, how you do that is always there's a matter of politeness and tact, and there's all kinds of things that people have to think about in, in a given context. But it can't be that certain ideas are just off the table and we don't uh, evaluate them or criticize them. And unfortunately, I think that's what's taken root. Um, part of that has to be the willingness to point to certain behaviors and cultures and say, that culture is bad. You know, point to Saudi Arabia and say, that's a horrible culture. Look how women are treated in this culture. Something that Ayan Hirsi Ali has been saying for many years now. Uh, and it's just outrageous that people, uh, especially feminists in the Western world, are not willing to pay attention to her when you have entire countries that treat women as just one rung up the ladder from slaves. It's insane. Now, I mean, not only not, do they not pay attention to her, yeah. Linda Sarsour, who is one of the organizers of the Women's March, said that her genitals should be cut off. Yeah, in a it's tweet. grotesque. Yeah. It's, but, but that's a direct consequence, I think, or at least a consequence of the idea that we can't criticize culture and we can't criticize other people's, say, religions and their faiths and their ideas. Uh, we have to be able to criticize culture, faith, religion, ideas, philosophies. And by the way, that includes mine as much as anybody else's. Um, and, and ultimately, this, this uh, you know, you, you have a discussion and truth is the final arbiter and we resort to, uh, to persuasion and debate to settle our, our differences. But that necessarily means saying some ideas are good and some ideas are bad. The way I often put it to people is if you're uncomfortable criticizing things like other people's cultural attitudes and their religion, understand that they themselves hold those ideas out as guides to behavior. Every religion is purportedly a guide to behavior. And if, and if it's a guide to behavior as opposed to just some floating ideas that we dream about, which it never is, then why wouldn't we criticize it? Every philosophy is a guide to behavior. It has real consequences in the real world. It, they counsel that people take certain actions, so we have to be willing to look at the ideas, decide whether they're true, and criticize them if they're false and bad. Yeah, I think that's really helpful um, and very and very cogently stated. So since you are um, an American guest, uh, the last thing that I want to turn to is the climate of hyper-partisanship currently in the United States and how it's uh -huh. related to the prominence of the free speech debate. Um, yeah. And I sent you this quote, which I thought was interesting from David French, where he talks about the partisan feedback loop where right-wing rage spurs left-wing censorship and the two sort of feed into each other. So I just wanted to get your, your thoughts on that phenomenon, if you if you agree with it. I, I Yeah, I, I agree with it, but I would say it's it's sort of happening from both sides. It's, uh, and I think, uh, so right-wing um, rage spurs left-wing censorship or left-wing rage spurs, spurs at least the same kinds of things on the right. I mean, sometimes it's censorship, sometimes it's just the culture of intimidation that we see on college campuses. But, and that's definitely come more from the left, that is that culture of intimidation and PC and trying to shut down other people's uh, ability to talk. And part of the reason for that is that the academy is dominated more by people on the left or liberals than it is by people on the right. But I tend to think that if uh, if it was dominated by conservatives, you'd see the same thing. And in fact, there are times in American history when when 
the right has dominated a lot of intellectual uh, um, at least governmental posts and they were the the ones who are who are pushing toward censorship and I it's hard to so one caveat here is I use I would use air quotes about around right and left because I, I don't think they're real categories and um, there's a lot of problem with it I don't want to suggest that one side is totally bad or totally good but I do think that there's something to the idea that we have this as French puts it a feedback loop um, where you just have both sides sort of screaming at each other and at various times trying to shut each other down. Um, that's a, I mean, that's a kind of complex phenomenon that, that there are a lot of things going on here. Part of, part of it is um, we've had problems with, you know, pressure group or interest, interest group warfare in America and I think every Western country for many, many years um, there's a kind of problem of factionalization. I mean, this is a problem that James Madison talked about in, in Federalist 10, so it's not exactly a new phenomenon. But uh, but people do, and this kind of harkens back to a point that you may, uh, mentioned before, which is that you know, oftentimes we see people, uh, you know, they, they flock to groups, they have group mentalities, and then what you have is, is, uh, is a kind of group or factional conflict um, ultimately, the solution to this is we've got to free people up to be able to debate ideas um, and to have the, the real political freedom to debate. I think one of the reasons that you see this kind of thing happening today is there are so many ways in which government has wormed its way into intellectual affairs. Uh, I mean, if you just think about government financing of schools here in America, we have the Title IX law, which essentially uh, uh, puts government into any disputes over over race, over sex. Uh, it creates uh, all kinds of, uh, I think, just ridiculous standards for things like sexism and, and racial and sex discrimination, which just once you insert government into the process, um, you have an, a real incentive for people to join into factions because that's the only way they can affect what government is doing. Um, and, uh, and you, you, so, um, when you politicize culture, culture becomes politicized and that's ultimately what we're seeing. Uh, people have to join factions in order to have political power to, uh, to react to the, to the groups that in a sense threaten them. And then you just get this feedback loop and it grows and it just spins off into chaos. And it's a really dark and scary phenomenon that uh, that there are a lot there's a lot more one could say about that. I mean, I think the the election of Trump had a huge impact on this, but I think all of the factors that have that all of the sort of symptoms of this that that we've seen come out after the Trump election, both here in the United States and worldwide, were always simmering right below the surface. It, Trump just sort of ignited them. And how uh, did he ignite them? He certainly is no no great advocate of free speech. No. <laughs> how did he ignite it? He ignited them by being who he is. Mm -hmm. I mean, he ignited, ignited them in a number of ways. He's. I think Trump really has the soul of an authoritarian. Um, and so him coming on the scene, I think, freaked everybody out on both the left and the right, or maybe not everybody, but certainly the best thinkers on left and right and also the, some of the worst elements it emboldened some of the worst elements on the, on the right, let's say, to be more uh, tribalistic um, and authoritarian, and which spurred the, a reaction from the same worst elements on the on the left. A perfect kind of concrete example of that is the riot in Berkeley, and not the the campus of Berkeley, but the the city of Berkeley, 
where there was a Trump rally and then Antifa rolled into town. And you just had basically a factional riot that, I mean, if you change the context slightly, it would be this type of thing that you saw in Nazi Germany's in the in Germany in the 1930s. It was a really scary phenomenon. Um, Trump ignited that by just being who he is, by being the kind of uh, wearing his authoritarianism on, on his sleeve, by uh, trying to ignite these kinds of feelings on the left. Um, but beyond that, I think we've had this kind of uh, attitude out there that uh, the way I would put it is it's OK to use the force of government to foist your ideas on other people. And once you go down that road, at some point, you're going to get some sort of a demagogue that stands up and says, well, you guys on the other faction have had your opportunity to try to force your ideas down the throats of the people on my side. Now it's our turn to do the same thing. You embolden people who want to use force or want to follow a, uh, a principle of might makes right. And the only thing you get at that point is, uh, is some sort of tribal or factional warfare. And uh, I mean, the, the answer is that we've got to do two things. We've got to get government out of the realm of ideas, which is hard, but we've got to start doing it. But before that, we've got to just recognize that if we don't respect free speech, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, the, the answer or the, 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 the only consequence is going to be chaos. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an interesting and crucial time for you as a sort of public <laughs> intellectual in the age of Trump. Um, but in a sense, you know, your task is more clearly delineated than ever. Yeah, that's definitely true. Uh, but for you, too, because the work that you're doing in law schools is absolutely <laughs> invaluable. So uh, I applaud what you're doing. And, and, you know, I hope that you guys are a wild success up there. Well, we certainly hope so as well. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. It's always a real pleasure, Steve. Yeah, no problem. I, I'm delighted to be here. Take care. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye. Yep.